I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Sorry, I'm, I'm dog sitting my granddog, Faisal. Oh right my now. God, the baby! <laughs> I love dogs. <laughs> Hey everyone, thank you for being here. I'm Evelyn and this is Reppin. Today we're diving into part two of this incredible two-part special. It's an amazing story where tragedy brought together a very unlikely duo. In the previous episode, we met Pardeep Kalika, who tragically lost his father in a shooting by a white supremacist. We learned how Pardeep has worked to process his grief and how he turned his devastating loss into something powerful and positive. But now, it's time to shift gears and introduce you to my next guest. He's a former founding member of one of the largest white supremacist groups in America during the 1990s. At just 17 years old, he became deeply involved in the white power movement, even holding the title of reverend in a self-proclaimed racial holy war. He was also the frontman of a hate metal band selling over 20,000 CDs to white nationalists across the globe. He was fueled by a desire to be a warrior for what he believed was a noble cause, saving the white race. However, today you're going to hear about a powerful transformation. You're going to discover how he moved away from hate and embraced a path of peace. Because he now practices Buddhism, and he's also become an advocate for unity and compassion. He's been working on a project called Serve to Unite with Pardeep. They engage young people of all different backgrounds to value humanity and the aspiration of living a genuine, honest life as a peacemaker. We're also going to hear about his book, The Gift of Our Wounds, which is co-authored with Pardeep. You're going to learn about the incredible work they're doing together, 
traveling, speaking, and collaborating with reformed extremists to confront hateful ideologies through storytelling and compassion. So lean in and listen to Arno Michaelis. Thank you so much for making time. I know a lot of your story, obviously. There are a lot of stereotypes of all kinds. Now, the stereotype for people who are white supremacists, one of them is that people who are white supremacists having a broken home, and you have certainly dispelled that because you had said in many previous speaking events that you had a wonderful home. You had a great family that loved you, that showered you with positivity, but you had an alcoholic in your family, which is a disease really. And you became a full-blown alcoholic at 16. Can you kind of just give people a little bit of background how you didn't quote unquote fit the mold of what a stereotypical white supremacist you know, came from? Because here you are, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the, one of the founding members of one of the largest white supremacist hate groups in the late 80s and 90s, you were the leader and you got off on getting a rise out of people and you chase that thrill. But you did not come from a broken home, really. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. It's interesting how we as a society like look at a broken home. I think the actual reality of it is, is that there's probably a lot of single parent homes that aren't as broken as they look. And I know from experience, there's a lot of like classically not broken homes that are are pretty broken beneath the surface. And that was definitely the circumstance for me. Right. My father is an alcoholic. My mom's not. Everything I do nowadays, I, I call it like Monday morning psychoanalysis of like looking back at my childhood, trying to figure out what went wrong and how one thing led to another. And obviously, although I think it's important to remind ourselves of this, at the time, I didn't really have a concept of what was happening. And you know, I don't have the hindsight that's informing my perspective today. But the base issue in my childhood was that my mother was miserable throughout my childhood. And she was miserable because of my father's drinking. A lot of that had to do with us living beyond our means, more so than my father being abusive. We had a nice house in a nice neighborhood, a very uh, wealthy, well-to-do suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But my parents didn't bring in the kind of money to make that kind of lifestyle functional. So they were constantly struggling. Their relationships sucked. They were fighting all the time. Again, not like physical violence, but there was definitely emotional violence happening. And everything in the world is, is a combination of nature and nurture. You can't really discount either one. And I think everything kind of fell into place. So my personality type made it so that I distanced myself from my mother rather than offering service and aid to her, which would have been a much healthier thing for both of us. As I distanced myself from my mother and my father, who loved me very much despite his disease, my suffering got worse. And that's when I started lashing out at other kids. Right. I developed a habit for causing trouble in school. That was like my main source of stimulation as a child was to drive not just my parents nuts, but teachers nuts, principals nuts, other kids' parents nuts. Everyone. Exactly. The world. And a lot of the work I do nowadays, we talk about the parallels between substance abuse and violent extremism. I believe the truth is, is that they're really both addictions. You get habituated to the sensation you feel when 
you immerse yourself into this us versus them ideology in the same way I'm an alcoholic myself. I can very much speak from personal experience in alcoholism. The same way an alcoholic gets habituated to the sensation of that alcohol gives them. In the same vein as substance abuse, and I illustrated by like my drinking journey. When I started drinking at age 14, I think I drank four or five beers and I passed out. When I quit drinking 20 years later at age 34, I could drink 18 beers and still function the next day. It's like the amount of substance that gets you high the first time doesn't get you high 10 times later. You have to keep escalating it. You're chasing it. Exactly. So my antisocial behavior escalated in that same way. I went from being a fully on the school bus, which was a thrill at first, and then it gets boring. So now I got to be a fights in the schoolyard, breaking and entering, vandalism. Alcohol enters the picture at age 14. And that's what brought me to age 16, where I literally have an addiction to repulsing civil society. I'm an alcoholic. I have a substance abuse issue as well. And I've been violent since I was a little kid, so I'm habituated to violence. So that's what produced 16-year-old Arno that got involved in white nationalism. Honestly, your turnaround is astounding, and we're going to get to that. But you said something in a previous speaking event. You had said there was like sort of a mental gymnastics that you had to do because you knew what you were doing was wrong. And you were violent. You admit to it. You admit to buying into the race war, feeling like you needed to protect the white race. So I don't even know if this conversation would ever happen if you were 16, you know, me being Asian and you being a white supremacist. But the thing that you said, which was really interesting, is despite the fact that you knew what you were doing was wrong, you still went for it because you chased that thrill and that adrenaline. And correct me if any of this is wrong, Arno. The mental gymnastics that you had said was that you had seen people around you, your friends, picking fights, and they were killed because they were picking fights, and they were acting out on the ideologies of this white supremacist group that you founded, that you were one of the founding members. But the mental gymnastics, which I thought was interesting, was that when your friend was killed, and there were multiple instances, correct? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, oh, he was shot because he went and picked a fight. You went the other way and used it as a narrative in terms of spinning and reinforcing the ideology that you guys had subscribed to. Can you talk about that mindset and explain that a little bit better than I did? I think it's explained it very well, actually. So when I talk about why I left white nationalism, the simple one-word answer is exhaustion. The exhaustion came from all sorts of directions. And one of the core exhaustions was that I was constantly spinning reality to suit my ideology. Rather than developing an ideology based on my lived experience and what's happening in the world around me and in my firsthand experience, I adopted this ideology of the past, of us versus them, and had primarily an ideology of race. Right. I fully bought into the idea that group identity by skin color was a good idea. Not only a good idea, and it wasn't just an idea. I believe that race was, rather than an ideology, which is what it actually is, I believe race was like a law of physics. Okay. Like a force of nature. That group identity by skin color was our natural way of existing. And when you buy into that lie that everybody who has the same amount of melanin 
thinks the same, acts the same, votes the same, has the same favorite colors, eats the same food. You buy into that lie of of homogeneity. That's how you can take that next step to be like, well, I have to defend my race. My race is my people. Their race is their people. My people are good. Their people are bad. I think that's inherent in the concept of race. Yeah. I don't think there's any healthy way to have race in society. Because I was so taken with the idea of race, my day-to-day reality would contradict that. I worked in a place with a lot, I had a lot of Afro-American coworkers, I had Latino coworkers, I had some Asian coworkers. I had a bunch of Euro-American, aka white coworkers, right. who I was always angry when they didn't agree with my racial ideas because they're white. They should be my people. Interestingly, one of the biggest gripes of white nationalism was that our highest order of enemy was a white person who didn't fight for their race. We saw them as the greatest enemy above and beyond anyone else because we figured because they're white, they should be fighting for white people. And if they're not, they're a traitor. And reality doesn't support any of this. So as I'm going through my day-to-day life and it all contradicts this ideology, which is really nothing more than ideas, I had to constantly do those mental gymnastics to make the ideology function. Right. And then it was exhausting. I can't even imagine. I guess that's what brings me to my the question I was going to ask you is during this whole time, you know, I and I know that you worked as an IT person, which is <laughs> in your brain more shameful than being <laughs> a former white supremacist. Not necessarily more shameful, but it, it, <laughs> it's at least as traumatic. I'll put it that way. Hey, listen, when OSs crash, it's a fucking nightmare. Let's just face it. OK, oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so I'm going to call you next time my shit's like gone, okay? No, please don't, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein. Erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. 
I was going to ask you if you had, you know, during this whole time, if you had any interactions with other races and, and minorities, and I guess reconciling, and you're talking about sort of the conflict of the two sides of you, one, what you're seeing in person, did it sort of slowly chip away at that ideology? Because when people have ideologies, they're usually quite passionate about believing in it wholeheartedly. So when you see and you have interactions, did you hate these people on a daily basis when you worked with them? It was always easier to hate from afar. Anytime the conversation happens, it made hate more difficult to function, I think. Mm-hmm. When I would have interactions with Afro-American and Latino and Asian coworkers, the majority of people I'd talk to would be like, hey, we're all human beings. Your skin color really doesn't mean anything. Right. And to this day, that's still the most common response I get as I travel the world and talk to people is I think the real core belief and the core wish among human beings is that skin color shouldn't mean anything and that we are all human beings. So that message is really the most powerful way to diminish racism in our society. Essentially, you were kind of instigating the prejudices to validate your ideology at that particular point. Can you share a conversation or an experience that you might have had? You're like, wait a second, like, because I, I know that you had talked about how compassion is the greatest weapon for hate. But before we even get there, there's one question that I wanted to ask you. So here you are, you're totally into this race war. Now, a lot of times when we discuss, or we meaning the society talk about race, there is this scarcity mindset. Like if I don't fight for what is mine, you're going to take away from me. Is that an accurate element into white supremacy? And like, what are white supremacists or different races afraid of like losing? I mean, exactly. I'm trying to understand that in a very tactile way. This idea of if I don't fight for what's mine, I'm not going to have enough. Well, the, the core of it is, is that any violent extremist ideology whether it's white nationalism or it's a religious fundamentalism or a political fundamentalism, they all rely on fear. None of them can function without fear. Right. So you're always, in order to maintain that ideology, you have to constantly, actively be scaring the shit out of yourself every waking moment of your day. They're coming to get me. They're coming to get my daughter. They're coming to get my mom. They're coming to take my land. They're coming to take my job. So the scarcity is really just an element of the fear. But it is very much the whole zero-sum game approach, which is unfortunately not particular to white nationalism. Right. No, I agree. It's very important that we don't convince ourselves like, oh, that's just a white nationalist thing. Absolutely. Fear is the greatest motivator for anyone, for any human being. And this kind of mindset, the scarcity of mindset, truly is a universal thing, but unfortunately. It's slightly different perspectives, but it's, it's threaded through humanity. For me personally, I don't really understand the scarcity of mindset because for me, it makes me feel better to give as many people a hand up as possible. Sort of like baseball. This is going to be like the dumbest example of all time, but bear with me, Arno. You know, Baseball is seen as the greatest American pastime, right? But baseball is about all people coming together on a team to work. You can't be the pitcher and then run to first base and throw yourself the ball. <laughs> right. It's everybody coming together. And that's what makes it the greatest game in the world. And that's what helps you win. 
people in general have this great ideology of America. And, you know, one of the greatest things about America is its ideology of equal opportunity for everybody and having the ability to make something of yourself despite what your background is. And we all subscribe to that. But the question really then becomes, are people actually standing behind that? And I think that's where the disconnect is. Can you talk about one moment that you had within yourself where you really made an intellectual cerebral choice to say, look, I'm exhausted because I'm sure there might have been a time where you were like denying your exhaustion and seeing that what you're seeing and what you're thinking did not jive. And you were probably fighting it and trying to like convince yourself, right? Was that moment in your person where you're like, holy shit, I'm really tired and what I've been doing is complete bullshit and I need to make a change? Well, you know what, Evelyn, I'm going to give you an exclusive. All right. I, I have not talked about my knowledge in any, I have talked about it here and there, but it's very much like this, this is a, from the vault. And you'll understand why I don't talk about it in middle schools and high schools and whatnot. Let's do it. So as you imagine, white nationalism is, is a very hypocritical ideology. It's like this ongoing exercise in hypocrisy. And but that was like a, a huge part of the exhaustion for me. It was just knowing why I was this raging hypocrite in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways that we were huge hypocrites is that we literally wallowed in alcohol. We drank like you would absolutely not believe. We would drink ourselves into utter oblivion on a regular basis. And we saw this as like our birthright. One of the many, many lies we were like, Oh, I can't invent it out the hall. Why? The Egyptians brewed a real nice beer. <laughs> There's all sorts of people. Every culture in human history has made their own alcohol. The white people didn't invent alcohol. We saw alcohol as like a European thing. You know, Irish whiskey, German beer. Mm -hmm. Then we celebrated it. My group, we saw all other drugs as absolutely forbidden. We saw them as part of the supposed Jewish plot to destroy all the white people. And among these drugs was marijuana. And we saw marijuana as something that dumped you down and dumped you to the oppression that the Jews were putting on us. And marijuana was absolutely forbidden. And to the point where if somebody got caught smoking marijuana, they'd get the shit kicked out of them. Oh, my God. It would be grounds to be kicked out of the group. So here I am trying to be this rock star. And Started a skinhead band as soon as I got in the movement. I had three bands throughout those seven years. And my last band I was in, well, far and away the most successful, and, and I think the best one too, musically. Right. I was very close with my bandmates. And we, we hung out all the time. We would practice every weekend. And this is probably like 90, 92, 93. I got out in 94. After a particular band practice, our bass player just pulls out a joint. He fires it up. And I was kind of like, what the hell? What are you doing? What's going on here? And, you know, he passes it to our drummer who takes a big hit and like, passes it to our other guitar player. And I'm, just, I'm like, and you're like what, the, what the fuck, guys? How are you? You're smoking pot. And they're like, yeah, we've all been smoking pot the whole time. Like, <laughs> now you know. And I was just like, holy shit. And, and so I, I took a puff myself and I was just like, wow, I didn't smoke pot before I, got, I became a skinhead, but I literally had sworn off it for six and a half years at that point. It was far more psychosomatic than actually an effect of the drug. It was like the first crack in the dike. 
Right. What's everything starts falling apart once I first started smoking pot again? Because then I'm just like, if we're wrong about this, what else were we wrong about? And then everything I looked at, like this is wrong, that was wrong. All the other hypocrisies. After every single band practice, we would all sit on this dilapidated, beat-up couch and pop in a VHS copy of This Is Spinal Tap. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. And we would watch it, we knew it word for word. And we knew damn well, it's like your condition as a white nationalist to sniff out every Jew everywhere. So like, it's not lost on us that Rob Ryder's Jewish. Right. And he's the genius behind This Is Spinal Tap, along with Harry Shearer and I'm sure a host of other brilliant Jewish people who made this yeah, movie yeah. happen. And this movie brought us unbridled joy on a daily basis. And here we were, right before watching this movie, we're writing songs about how Jews are the scum of the earth and we need to eliminate them. And then we all plop down and watch Spinal Tap. Now we're smoking up a joint while we're watching Spinal yeah. Tap too. <laughs> so now it's like, okay, now we can like sit around and watch Spinal Tap and not feel like complete assholes, like not feel like complete hypocrites. <laughs> all we have to do is just let go of all the bullshit. And that was a, a huge factor in me leaving that I don't talk about. No, I appreciate that. So you're saying essentially that we have Rob Reiner, Spinal Tap, and Weed to thank your transformation, essentially. Along with Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. Okay. Seinfeld is a big factor as well. And the Green Bay Packers. Okay. <laughs> a lot of Jewish people, but also pro sports. But we needed all those superpowers to kind of bring you down. A lot of people, despite noticing the hypocrisy or the disconnect that what you're seeing in front of you and what you're you're enjoying, you know, supporting Rob Reiner, weed, which, by the way, I've never smoked weed in my life. I know I'm such a nerd. I've done like extra strength allergy pills, and that's the, the biggest thing I've ever done. <laughs> More power to you. You took the time to say, OK, this is happening. I enjoy these things. And yet this is what I'm subscribing to. Because again, not to harp on this, but it is kind of a big point that I'm trying to make. You weren't just a member of, of one of the largest group. Like you founded it. And one of your bands, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, sold like 20,000 CDs sort of preaching hate musically. Yeah. But you sort of took the time to say, hey, listen, this side and this side don't jive. And I'm going to make the turn. I'm sure there has to be people that are in white supremacist groups or any sort of racial divide. It's not exclusive to just white people that see the disconnect and still don't give a shit. They still subscribe to the ideology. So what's happening there? And how did you make the connect to be like, OK, I see the disconnect, but I'm actually going to do something about it. Tell me about that turning point. Yeah, that, that's a great point that you make. I think it's a nature-nurture issue. I've always been incredibly curious, and mm -hmm. I think my innate curiosity is what helped me really face that disconnect and, and to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is innately curious. I'd also point out that my innate curiosity didn't stop me from making these mistakes, as it ideally would have. So I, I've been working in counter-violent extremism globally for going on 13 years now. That's amazing. And when you're talking about violent extremism, you're going to be talking about substance abuse, which we talked about parallels before. You're going to be talking about domestic dysfunction in the household, broken homes and whatnot. Domestic abuse is, is a factor quite often. One thing that you'll see with people who 
maybe have an abusive spouse is that as a survival mechanism, we human beings do those mental gymnastics to be like, well, he really loves me. He doesn't mean it when he hits me. Right. He just wants the best. He's working very hard. And, and so the, like a woman, and it's usually a woman, sometimes the men are, the, you know, sometimes the roles are reversed. But in any case, I understand. a woman will convince herself that this is the normal way of being. Right. And also get to the point where the idea of changing things, as in leaving this abusive man, becomes more terrifying than the prospect of staying in this Horrible situation, but you, you've acclimated yourself to it. You, you've yeah. done your survival reaching to just be, okay, I can handle this. Maybe I did do something wrong. Yeah, I get The human it. mind does those things just so we can survive horrible circumstances. And it's a similar thing with white nationalism or any other violent extremist ideology. In the space of color-violent extremism, I'm what's known as a former violent extremist or well, former. And I've met former members of ISIS. Uh, one of my dearest friends is a former Antifa from Denmark. I know formers from every flavor of violent extremism you can imagine. And it's a common story that when you're in the midst of, uh, in the throes of these ideologies, and you would know it's wrong and it feels wrong, the idea of changing is, is scarier than staying in it. That's fair. That's what I think keeps a lot of people in that place. And for me, again, like I said, partly it's my natural curiosity. Partly is my parents never gave up on me and always let me know that they loved me and they wanted me back. And then I, I had a kid and saw my friends get killed and right. go to prison. So it's really all those things that came together that put me in a position to make the right decision back then. And I'm, I'm grateful for that every day. I am as well. And I think that acknowledgement and, and intellectual awareness is a big part of it. And I'm glad that you had a good group of people around you and you had your daughter. But I think you have to also acknowledge the fact that it really does take, you know, there's no really, I'm not really super eloquent about this, but it takes a, a lot of balls to be able to be like, yo, I don't know this other world or side of me because I'd rather deal with the devil I know versus the devil I don't know, right? That's usually the, the, yeah, the comfort zone. So the fact that you sort of took the time and the recognition to say, oh shit, this doesn't jive and I'm actually going to do something about it. I think those are two different things. I think recognizing it is one part of it and then sort of actively doing something to make it different is a whole nother ball game. So I Arno, I really give you a lot of credit. Another thing that you had said, and I loved that you said this, you said that like someone was very nice to you and compassionate to you. And that also helped chip that armor of hate down. Can you tell me an experience that that kindness and compassion continued to penetrate that armor? Yeah, so an homage to Spinal Tap and rock and roll. My lighter song, you know, my Freebird yeah, yeah. is the old lady at McDonald's story. Like in the early days of my foray into white nationalism, I had moved out of my house at 16. I lived in a hovel with a bunch of other punk rockers. We drew the punk rockers out, replaced them with skinheads, and literally tore the house down when we when we left. But I drank so much that I and because I'm a gifted genius, I, I figured that if I'd eat nothing but ramen noodles, and by ramen noodles I mean the brick kind, you get 10 for a dollar, like just to fill your belly so you can drink yeah. more. I would have yeah. more drinking money. 
And the one day of the week with like 500 milligrams of sodium. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then all the, the noodle like substance that can basically ferment your insides. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I ate nothing but ramen noodles except for payday when I would go to the ubiquitous burger joint and get their ubiquitous big burger. And the day I went to do that, I walk in and Behind the counter is this elderly Afro-American woman, and she just has this amazing, genuine smile that's just beaming. And it's it's like the sun. Like, the sun shines on everyone. It doesn't care what color your skin is, how much money you have, how much money you don't have. It doesn't care if you hate someone or love someone. The sun just shines unconditionally. Right. And this woman's smile was like the sun. It shone upon me like everybody else. And it made me very uncomfortable because I'm trying to hate black people. And here's this very sweet elderly black woman who has this smile and, and it makes it almost impossible to hate her. So I'm just like, I have to get my food and scurry out of there, which I do. A uh, week goes by, it's payday again. I go in, the McDonald's is right where I cash my check. I go in there again. She's there again. This time she remembers what I ordered. And she's asking me about my day and, and I'm getting all the more uncomfortable. So I get my stuff, I get out of there. Between the next two paydays, again, because I'm a gifted genius, I got a swastika tattooed on the middle finger of this hand, which has since been removed and covered up. But it was strategic on that middle finger because everything I was back then was meant to provoke hostility from people. I wanted people to hate me. I wanted people to hit me. Wanted every interaction I got mixed up with to devolve to violence. And that's what I was trying to provoke. So when people would get in my face and say, Oh, you know, you're a racist Nazi, I would go, Yeah, what are you going to do about it? And I'd show them that swastika and I'd, I'd show my middle finger along with it. As I'm walking into the McDonald's and I see her there again behind the counter, I freeze in the doorway and I, I had this like involuntary feeling i'm like i don't want her to see this tattoo right I, I was ashamed of this tattoo that i just got and i sat there for a minute and i'm like doesn't anybody else work here like <laughs> i'm waiting for somebody else to come to the counter nobody is like she's the only one behind the counter and then i'm thinking like where's the next closest McDonald's? like they're everywhere well it was december in wisconsin and freezing and cold and i was hungry so i'm like well i'll just i'll i'll just I won't show her the back of my hand. I won't let her see it. Not thinking that I got to reach into my front pocket to get my money out, which when I did, she saw the tattoo. And she looks at me in, my, in the eye and she just goes, what is that on your finger? Oh, shit. Like the same way my grandma used to talk to me when I was beating up my little brother. Right. And I couldn't even look her in the eye. I'm just like staring down at my steel-toed skinhead boots. And, and I, I was like six three already at that point i was probably a good foot taller than she was but i felt like six inches high when she asked me that because i was ashamed of the symbol of hate that i had put up my finger in her presence right and so i just said well it's nothing and when i looked up again she goes i know that's not who you are you're a better person than that and i just was like can i sell my backpack please and i got my phone and i scurried out of there and I, I would love to tell you that I went skipping out going, racism, stupid, like, oh, yay, I love black people now. Right. But it wasn't how it worked. I wolfed out my food. 
I went back to my. That's the Hollywood version. Exactly. I, yeah. I went back to my skinhead hovel. I got drunk as I could, as fast as I could. And then I went out in the streets and picked a fight with the first person I saw because I needed violence, visceral, physical violence to separate who I was from this experience of humanity that I just had. Right. And I spent the next seven years, six and a half years, technically, doing everything in my power to rip that experience from my being. But that's not how human experience works. If it did, there'd be no mental health industry. Right. Anything that happens to us is part of our experience from that day forward. And all we can do is process it and reconcile it. We can't get rid of it. We can't subtract it. We can't erase it. Right. And I honestly believe that that woman's bravery, along with other very brave people like a Jewish boss and a lesbian supervisor and my Afro-American and Latino co-workers, the bravery of these people I claim to hate who instead treated me with kindness and showed me compassion when I least deserved it, but when I needed it most were huge factors in my turnaround right up there with my mom and dad and my daughter, Rob Reiner, Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> and Larry David. I love those guys. I love that you said compassion is your vengeance. And clearly this woman's kindness and compassion and the ability to actually see you, Arno, not the image that you projected, but you. How can compassion and kindness rescue us, This us meaning collectively, because there is so much disconnect and there is so much divisiveness and there is so much hate. And a lot of it, I think, you know, it's not one factor. It's like multiple factors that contribute into this sort of chaotic, very complicated world we're living in. How can we use compassion or do you feel like it is our only rescue to help us as a society? Because we're not listening to one another. We're all judged by what we look like. We're all judged by our labels, be it our names, the shoes that we wear, even your tattoos, right? They're, tattoos are all sort of sending a message or a signal to something, right? The, the fact that this woman was able to see beyond your tattoos, your steel tip boots, which by the way, you have now completely redefined what a white supremacist looks like to me because you're telling me you're watching, you're beating the shit out of people, you're hating people, then you're going to watch Spinal Tap and you got reduced to a puddle <laughs> by an old woman who treated you kindly like a grandmother. It's like a little cartoon character. But, but going back to it, like the compassion being the rescue, can it still rescue us? And how can we all implement that? I think compassion can absolutely rescue us individually and as a society. But I think what's really important is to understand exactly what compassion is and what it's not. So I'm a Buddhist. And so my definition of compassion comes from my spiritual background, because that's really what I feel in my experience. That's what's connected me with compassion. Right. And so I believe that compassion is very simply Bearing witness to suffering, and that's it. Bearing witness to suffering without judgment, without prescription, and without an agenda. And I think nowadays the word compassion is very much confused with passion. In Buddhism, passion's not necessarily a good thing. It's a bit of a, a trope to look at society in terms of Eastern and Western 
because really, honestly, we were all, all of our culture has been intertwined and mixing for so long and it will continue to do so. Right. But using that frame just to, to make a point, in so-called Western society, passion is seen as like a really good thing. And everybody wants it. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a, a passionate relationship with someone they love. They want to be passionate about their career. They want to be passionate about activism, and passionate about whatever they're into. Whereas in Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, which is associated a lot with Eastern society, passion is seen as something that clouds our vision. It stops us from seeing things as they are because our passion is the lens that we see things through. And it actually narrows our perception rather than broadens it. I love that. That's great. I'm a product of all cultures and both cultures. So like I'm as susceptible to passion as anyone else. I'm in a relationship right now and I'm pretty passionate about it. I get passionate when I think about her. But at the same time, I know that my passion could be my undoing also. If it leads to jealousy, if it leads to suspicion. Yeah. So I, I'm actively kind of not subduing the, the the passion, but just like feeling it and letting it go rather than stewing in it. Got it. And what's happening in our society nowadays is passion is overriding compassion left and right. On the far right side of the spectrum, they love our police officers and first responders and veterans. And rightfully so. Like, I love all those people as well. And they deserve love and they deserve compassion. But compassion isn't like opening your heart to people that you're sympathetic to and then slamming it shut to anyone that you're not sympathetic to. That's passion. That's not compassion. So compassion is you bear witness to all suffering and especially the suffering of people who make you sick, of people who make you think like, what the hell is wrong with them? Like that's when compassion becomes most important. If you don't have compassion for everybody, it's not compassion. Right. So we as a society need to get over our political entrenchments. If you're not showing compassion for people that you don't vote for, you're not showing compassion, period. That's the the trick, and it's certainly an imposing one, but it's not impossible because I've witnessed it over the course of my life, and, and I know that it can be done. That's why it's kind of become my mission to to do it. That's amazing. And just going back to what you were saying, I think I'm kind of just going to truncate this perspective, having compassion for both sides, all sides, really, despite the fact whether or not you agree with that person or not, or you see them as the quote unquote enemy or, you know, for the lack of the better word, you know, Pardeep had said something that was interesting. And I'm going to kind of ask you if, if you think that this is similar to what he was saying. Society is very quick to write off monsters and label people as monsters because it's much more clear cut, right? It's black and white. There's no shades of gray, but that's also part of the problem, right? Society is creating quote unquote monsters and these monsters aren't really monsters. They're actually someone's son, father, husband, daughter, brother, whatever. And we can't sort of clearly label them as bad people because that's a part of the problem. We have to see them for why they became the person that they are. So going to your point, it's having the compassion for people that you may go, oh my God, like what the hell did you just do? And 
understanding that they deserve your compassion because that's the only way we can kind of overcome all of these biases and barriers and disconnects that we have. Is that accurate, Arno? Yeah, absolutely. I've done a ton of work in Europe and I, I continue to. I'm going to be in Oslo in a couple of weeks and I'm excited about that. Yeah. But I was in Europe a lot, in like 15 and 16, when the so-called Islamic State was at their peak. And a real hot topic was amongst all these European countries is like, what do we do with these kids of ours who went jogging off to Syria to join ISIS? And now they want to come back home. There's a lot of people who are like, fuck them. No, they're not coming back here. We don't want them back in our country, whether you're talking about Germany or Denmark or UK or whatever. Right. And my position is, is that you might as well just strap a suicide vest on them yourself. Because there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who has nothing to lose. That's who the so-called Islamic State wants. They want to create people who got nothing to lose. And when we turn our backs on largely kids who made stupid mistakes and became enamored with the ISIS narrative, which interestingly is, is almost dead on the narrative of white nationalism, especially with the anti-Semitism. Right. But it's all just us versus now ideology. Something hit me as I, as I was talking about this. And I was doing a lot of media then and whatnot. And I, I've always been a music, TV, film, sports geek. I've always read a lot. I've always I played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. I loved like fantasy books. I'm rewriting a bunch of like Robert E. Howard Conan right now, which I absolutely love. But I, as I'm talking about this ISIS issue at the... So you're a giant dork. I'm totally a dork. Absolutely. I dork circles around most people. And so... <laughs> with, I, I, me too, me too. <laughs> you think about like the Lord of the Rings series. You know, the, the good guys, the elves mm-hmm. and the Gandalf and the hobbits against these evil orcs and goblins. Yeah. You know, there's a scene where they're falling to the goblin kingdom and they're fighting them all and they're escaping and they're just got like big swords and they're going, ooh, and they're like just chopping up goblins wholesale. They're falling to pieces left and right. Yeah. And at no point does anyone sit and think like, oh, did that goblin have a mom and dad goblin who are going to miss him now? No, they're goblins. Fuck them. Nobody cares about them. Yeah. Or do those orcs, like, oh, is that orcs? wife gonna be crying now with a bunch of orc babies who are missing their orc father because he just got a you know his head lopped off and no answer is no because they're orcs and that's fine in the lord of the rings universe that's how it works that's why we like it that's why it's fun yeah but the real world is not the lord of the rings isis are not orcs right white nationalists are not goblins right they're our fellow human beings And we all, as party points out so eloquently, we all started out the exact same as innocent children who were born into whatever circumstance we were born into. And then through a process of nature and nurture, lead us to wherever we are today for good, bad, or ugly. When we have this attitude, like the enemy is an orc who can just be chopped up and blown up without consequence and nobody cares. We're becoming the monsters ourselves. Right. Thus fulfilling the Nietzsche quote of beware you don't become a monster when you're fighting them. I think that's incredibly powerful, though you've just completely ruined Lord of the Rings for me from now on. Thanks, Arno. (laughs) I'm going to be like thinking about the fucking orc family. Thanks a lot. Tell me about your book. It's called The Gift of Our Wounds. Yeah, we actually spent a lot of time trying to come up with that title. And 
I love music and, and a real common saying of music is that there's never been an original piece of music written. <laughs> it's all all derivative of something that it was inspired by. Yeah. And I think writing is like that to a degree. And Party and I being in the kind of healing, forgiveness, compassion sphere, heard somebody say it's like a gift in the wound, talking about forgiveness, actually. And so that's where the gift of our wounds title came from. The book's really about exploring what that forgiveness looks like from all sorts of angles, not just as a victim of a horrific hate crime as Party and his family have been, but also as a perpetrator trying to find a way to forgive himself for harm that he's done to the world. When you commit an act of violence against another human being, I believe from a spiritual place, you're harming yourself as well. And that's not to diminish the harm that's been done to the target of that violence. In fact, you have to honor both to initiate a holistic kind of healing process. It's the principle of restorative justice. It is understanding that, yes, the victim has been harmed, absolutely, and that needs to be a priority in our healing process. But we understand that the perpetrator harmed themselves when they committed this act of violence. Got it. And that that needs to be healed also. If you're in the comments section on Facebook and you're getting into it with somebody who doesn't vote like you and you start attacking them personally, at the time, you might be like, yeah, I'm showing this bastard what's up. But then after you think about it, whether you're conscious of this or not, like that process of hurting someone else deliberately does not do you any good. Right. In fact, it diminishes your ability to love the people in your life that are important to you. Diminishes your ability to do whatever your job is at your best capacity. When you hurt people, it hurts you also. Right. And that's a really important concept that I think we need to get our heads around when we're talking about violence in any sort of context. In the book, you and Pardeep share your experiences both sides. Can you talk about the response that you've gotten from the book and what you hope to do in terms of sharing your experiences and story? One of my favorite anecdotes is when we published the book, Pardeep was working as a therapist full time. And he still does, but now he's focusing on counterviolent extremism. But he was a conventional therapist to just day-to-day people coming in, talking about their problems with them. And whenever somebody would show up, there's always like the little couple minutes of small talk before the meat and potatoes of therapy begins. Right. And so people would be like, oh, well, you know, what have you been up to, blah, blah, blah. And party would say, oh, I just published a book with my friend Arno. What's the book called? It's called The Gift of Our Wounds. And just hearing the title, Pardeep said he could see the gears turning in his patient's heads. The gift of our wounds. So you're telling me that my trauma could be a gift if I just frame it in the right way. Right. If I process it in the right way. And that happened with person after person after person. Wildly different backgrounds, wildly different traumas that they were needing help with. But there was just a universal appeal to that that idea that the trauma we go through in life can be an asset going forward that can make us more able to love people and more able to help people and more able to forgive, more compassionate, ultimately happier. 
And it sounds very counterintuitive. And obviously nobody's like, oh, I better go find some trauma in my life so I could be happy. Like, it's, <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. But at the same time, again, being a Buddhist, like Buddhism 101 is like, if you live, you suffer. That's just a fact of human life. Right. So a lot of what Buddhism's about is, is saying like, well, this suffering is something that's unavoidable and I just got to hunker down and process it, deal with it, move on. So I think a lot of that comes through in the gift of our wounds. And and as you, you may have noticed as you read it, every chapter begins with a bit from uh, Sikhi scripture. That idea from the line of scripture is kind of carried out in that chapter. So I, to me, it's really about seeing the value in all of life and realizing that our trauma can can bring us to a place where we're not necessarily glad we went through it, but we're, we're happy with who we are. Right. That's definitely what I would describe my life as nowadays. A question I get very often is like, oh, would you do it all the same? And I'm like, well, it's a stupid question, but it's an interesting one because at the same time, because I'm very happy with who I am now. Right. I'm very happy with my life and I'm, I'm delighted that my job is to literally travel around the world telling stories and listening to stories and interacting with amazing people from every background you can imagine. And I, I have an amazing daughter and great family. I'm happy with who I am. And I would not be who I am had I not done everything that happened in my life, good, bad, and ugly. At the same time, if we're going to have this, well, would you do it all the same? It's like, well, the answer is this. You're going to ask me an impossible question. I'm going to give you an impossible answer. The impossible answer is, if I had it all to do over again, I wouldn't want to be anyone different if I could somehow be who I am now without hurting all the people that I've hurt. That's great. And the good news is I was not going to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. But I do have one question to ask you. And I'm, I'm so glad, Arno, that you are doing this podcast with me. But I guess one thing that you had also mentioned was forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that we haven't necessarily touched on in this particular conversation. But I know that you have talked about it in the past as you know, needing to forgive. And I guess that is one component of compassion as well. Compassion, not passion. And I'm so glad that you sort of talked about the differences between passion and compassion. You know, you can intellectually register compassion and saying, I need to see this person for, you know, the fact that he is a human being, but then he also is a murderer, essentially, you know. Right. You know, any mass shootings, let's call it what it is. It's not just a shooter. He is a murderer. I agree. So forgiveness is a huge component that we haven't necessarily touched on here. I know there's this crazy backstory between you and Pradeep. One of the members that was in your group that you founded was the murderer of Pardeep's father and the, the shooter and killer at the temple. Right. That's a very tough pill to swallow, even though you may not have known him personally. And I know that you have said you did not know him personally, but he was sort of subscribed to the same ideology and the same group. But that aside, for all of your hatred and all of the things that you have gone through to bring you to the man that you are now, it's one thing to turn your life around the way you have just as a private person, which in itself is like awesome. But it's another thing to go out actively to promote these lessons that you have learned and to try to inspire and empower others to say, look, 
I was in your shoes. I completely subscribed to what you believed in. In fact, I founded one of the biggest groups that subscribed to this. And now this is the man I am. Actively going out to try to unite people is a whole nother ballgame, Arno. But have you forgiven yourself for all the things that you have done in the past? And I know that you probably still struggle with the fact that, you know, someone from your group took your good friend's father, like took his life. Mm -hmm. Because I know you and Pardeep are good friends. Where are you with the forgiveness process within yourself? Well, the most powerful lesson I learned about it is this understanding that it is a process, that it's not going to be an end point. I don't think there's ever going to be a time where I'm going to wake up and be like, hey, today's the day. Like, I forgive myself. I'm done with all that bullshit. Yay. Like, that, that's just not how yeah. it works. It, it's something That'd that... That'd be awesome. It would be, but, but it's just not how it works. Right. So submitting to that process is really important. I think ultimately what it foils down to is, is happiness. So I, I don't have any college degrees. I don't have letters after my name like Fardeep does. I have three failed attempts at college degrees, but I do have many honorary PhDs from Google and Discovery Channel, things like that. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in neuroscience and mental health. And I've read that neuroscientists have recently like distilled human happiness and come to the conclusion that human happiness is composed of three things. Gratitude, kindness, and forgiveness. And the more familiar you are with those three qualities of human existence, the happier you're going to be. The great news is, is like it doesn't cost a dime for any of those things. You don't need money to be grateful, kind, and forgiving. It's something that everyone can do. The other great news is that when you are genuinely practicing those things and normalizing them in your life and you just kind of exude them everywhere you go, whatever you do is going to be more successful than otherwise because those are very magnetic qualities. It's things that all human beings can connect with and relate to. So whether you're digging ditches or you're a banker or wherever in between, your interactions and what you do in life is going to be more impactful, more successful when you are grateful, kind, and forgiving. Right. In my case, my biggest issue with forgiving myself is that there was a time in my life when I felt that hating myself was the only way to honor the people that I had harmed. Wow, that's tough. No one's ever done anything to me that has shaken my life. It's, I don't have anyone to forgive in a broad sense. But like my father hasn't been murdered, knock on wood. Yeah. I haven't lost on ones like that. Okay. I don't have a perpetrator in my life that I need to forgive other than myself. I can imagine if someone did kill a loved one of mine, I would have that same kind of like, I'm never forgiving them to honor my loved one. Right. I'm going to hold that hatred against this person who took my loved one from me in order to honor how much I love my loved one. And then once you talk it through, you're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. The whole reason I'm hurting is because I love this person so much who's been taken from me. Why is hating the person who did it going to do anything good? Right. And it's not going to do a damn thing to their perpetrator. They're used to hate. That's why they act like that is because hate, a thing they live and breathe, dumping more hate on them isn't going to make them any less hateful. Yeah. It's not going to make the world any less hateful. It comes down to like a tactical approach. What do I want to accomplish and what moves do I have to make to accomplish that? 
my personal mission statement is I want to bring about a society where all people are valued and included. And hating myself isn't going to do that. Hating myself for the harm that I've done yesterday or 30 years ago isn't going to make the world any less harmful. Right. But forgiving myself will because it helps me put myself in a position where I'm talking to someone who's in the Ku Klux Klan and I'm, I'm helping them to get out and to change their life. I have to walk the walk. I got to walk the talk that I'm talking to them. Yeah. They're going to know if I'm like, hey, you need to forgive yourself and compassion and rah, rah, rah. If I'm not living those things, then those words are meaningless. Right. If I'm living them and I'm genuine when I say it, then those words have incredible power. I've been very fortunate to be able to help people make those journeys and take the journey that I've been on. And I couldn't do that if I wasn't actively trying to forgive myself with every passing day. You can't hate other people unless you hate yourself. You can't love yourself if you hate other people. The transformation is incredible. And I think the intellectual acknowledgement as well as the emotional acknowledgement, which are two very different things, you can sort of in your brain know it, but emotionally not connect with it. The fact that you've connected those two pieces, I think it's really incredible. Forgiveness, you're right, it's a process. And I think that the fact that you're doing it and you're doing the work, not only for yourself as a person, but also for your daughter, the world that you're leaving your daughter and others Absolutely. is really incredible. And I hope you acknowledge that. But will you sign us off, Arno? Let me know who you are and what you represent. My name is Arno Michaelis. I'm a human being and I represent basic goodness. Thank you so much to Arno Michaelis for coming to guest and for sharing his extraordinary experiences. He really shows me that there is so much power in compassion and forgiveness, and you can really transform your life. Arno's story is really an awesome reminder that even in the darkest of times, redemption, growth, and love are possible. So be sure to check out Arno's book, The Gift of Our Wounds, which he again co-authored with Pardeep. Their work serves as a testament to the power of compassion forgiveness, and the unwavering belief that change is always possible. I also want to take this time to thank you, the listeners, for choosing to spend your time with me and my guests here. I know how precious time is, and I want to only bring you interesting people and guests and their experiences that I hope resonate with you. Your listenership means so much, but I can't do this series without your help. So if you want to support the podcast, it's really easy to do so. Just subscribe, share, download, and leave a review. Next up is actor, content creator, Ryan Alexander Holmes. I'm black and Chinese. First of all, there was no black people in my neighborhood, so didn't have any of that. But the, my neighborhood was like 50% Chinese, 50% white. So I did have Chinese people, but I didn't really feel accepted by them in a way that felt like I was one of them. They didn't see me as Asian. It was... Weird, because I, I, I grew up in the Chinese community. I would go to these Chinese buffets, I would go to these Chinese restaurants, and I still live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And they were like, why is this black kid with you? Like, they would actually ask that to my grandma. Hi, this is Ryan Alexander Holmes on Reppin. It's where we have conversations that create change. 
Now, I invite you to join this conversation and share your thoughts. You can do that by reaching out to me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. And don't forget, you can go to my YouTube page where you'll get exclusive content. And it's where we can spend some quality time together. And I'll share my thoughts with you. Thank you to my super team, Nelson Pinero and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.